feel like when you exist in the same spot, it's almost like your ghosts stack up. And I have a hard time thinking of my home office as my workspace after a while. It's just a place I'm existing and I have a trouble focusing. And I resent how it turns happy places into workplaces. You know, like I have a tiny, tiny backyard here in, in the city and I walk outside to take a break and my backyard has stopped becoming the area where I like barbecue and have fun. And now it's like my break room. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more calm, comfort, and clarity through the simple act of slowing down. My guest today is Sean Blanda, a writer, an editor, and a keen media observer who recently wrote a thought-provoking piece that summarily debunked all of the gushing articles about a sunny future in which we all work remotely, live flexibly, and never see anyone at the office ever again. Sean is also a friend and a former work colleague who I collaborated closely with as real 3D humans working in an office for many years, as we put together the 99U conference and other creative ventures together. In this conversation, we dig into not just how much of our identity is wrapped up in work, but how much of our identity is wrapped up in going to work, in inhabiting a shared physical workspace, in going to a space where you get to be a different person for a little while. We also discuss the psychic weight of working from home, the disciplined boundary setting that is required, the challenges of providing evidence that you're doing your work, and the stress of constantly switching between your home and work identities. Finally, we explore the divide between the haves and have-nots that's playing out behind the curtain of this shift to working from home. The huge set of workers whose jobs depend on the office economy that is slowly atrophying as knowledge workers stay home and no longer patronize restaurants, dry cleaners, taxi services, and more. All right. That's where we're headed. Let's go ahead and dive in. A few months ago, you wrote an essay with the upbeat title, Our Remote Work Future is Going to Suck, (laughs) (laughs) that got quite a bit of notice. Um, It made it to the top of Hacker News and got picked up by a bunch of influential folks. Could you start by talking about what was the impetus for writing that piece? think the impetus for why I write almost anything and maybe you too, which is just sheer frustration. Um, the, you know, when, when there's any grand societal change and COVID is certainly that I think a lot of people rush to predict what this will mean. And usually in terms of what will this mean for tech or for work or for commerce. And I just felt like a crazy person that the case everyone was laying out over and over again, that one of the main impacts of COVID was, uh, we're all going to work remotely. Um, And not only that we're all going to work remotely, but this is a welcome change and this is good for everybody. And this utopia we are heading towards with like a flexible work schedule. And isn't this great? Um, And I disagree. Uh, I worked remotely for almost three years and I spent years before that talking with entrepreneurs and creative people who uh, dabbled in work working remotely or are advocates for working remotely. And I just felt like I had a good grasp on the subject and thought people weren't seeing the whole view. And I was worried that people working remotely for a short period of time would think, oh, this is great and wouldn't 
be aware of some of the more long-term, more vexing downside. So I published the piece to help lay out the case in part to be a contrarian, but also to, to get another point of view out there that I didn't see. Um, and I, and it really comes down to what is the point of working, which I know is something you explore all the time in, in your work. Um, why do we do this? And it felt like the conversation about remote work was being taken over people who were focused on uh, efficiency and productivity. And there was not a lot of soul in that conversation. So those things frustrated me. And, and then the third part about it, which I'm sure we'll get into, is I'm a big localist uh, that our local communities and the people who are geographically close to us are extremely, uh, who, that's what we should care about most. And the remote work argument is kind of anti-localist. It's the idea that you're untethered from a local community and that the companies you work for are, are untethered from their local community. And that's just not a world I want to live in. Untethered is a word that came up for me as well. And it's something I want to come back to a little bit later, I think. But for the moment, I'm curious you know, let's just dive into, I guess, what do you think we're missing about the downsides of working from home? And as you mentioned, one of the arguments that a lot of people make is that you can be more productive, right? You don't have all the distractions, you don't have all the interruptions, and that you'll be judged solely based on your productivity, you know, not just, let's say, like, butts and chairs or showing up and looking busy. What do you think people are missing here? I think there was definitely a time, especially for, I mean, we should kind of call it the elephant in the room. A lot of the conversation around remote work centers around this kind of tech design, creative knowledge worker, which the way that person works is different than lots of other kinds of jobs. And I think, I think when people think of their jobs in their minds, they think they're linear. They think they are task-based. They think that they're very, it's very easy to show uh, progress and productivity. And in my experience, that's just not the way a lot of creative jobs work. Your influence on an organization or on a product is often indirect. Uh, It's often collaborative. It's often not so clear your exact uh, linear effect on something. And I think the people advocating for remote work tend to have jobs where they do have a linear effect. They're the founder or they're an executive or they're a developer where you can kind of track your contributions or um, even designers, right? You either did the design or you didn't. And when you get to other job functions in these knowledge worker roles, like I work in marketing, a lot harder to decide whether I had a good quarter than my sales counterpart. And I feel like that's missing. And in orgs I've worked at, people in my kind of role with that indirect impact are easily forgotten or they're they're relegated to just a slack box and uh you know someone you ask people for someone you ask for things and i've been on both sides of that and it's it's not fun and i don't think that's often accounted for and i tried to touch on that in the piece and so what you think is missing there is a lot of the soft skills that people are working with in the office? Like, is it, is it that you think a lot of your work wouldn't get recognized or a lot of people who are doing these less quantifiable jobs, let's say marketing or social media, that it's just harder to judge whether or not they're being productive? Yes. And often like creative work has an output, but the inputs are really, are kind of opaque in an office situation, but they're definitely opaque in a Slack uh, remote environment. I, I think there are a lot of 
soft skills, unmeasurable things that good workers, good teammates contribute to an organization that uh, go unnoticed and, and, and are unmeasurable and, and often don't come up in performance reviews. And a lot of the incentives for being a good teammate, uh, that, that, that pressure is there in an office environment. And in a Slack environment, I think we see a lot of burnout because people are still trying to do the supportive functions without the reward of the in-person behavior. And I think that's that disconnect, that untetheredness, you know, we mentioned earlier, is the cause of a lot of angst of remote workers. If if our jobs were so clear and so process-oriented, like you need to write two articles a week, that's it, full stop. Remote work is great. I, I, I think that makes sense. But as jobs change and organizations pivot and what companies do change and react to market forces, remote work kind of breaks that kind of adaptability, both you know, for us as individuals, but also for the companies. And I've seen a lot of chaos emerge as a result of, especially in large remote organizations. Well, let's come back to this thing that you kind of touched on a little bit, which is this sort of performative aspect of work. And I think that, you know, when we talk about, oh, you're only going to be judged on your productivity, you know, when you work from home. And in fact, actually, you'll be able to be more productive. And there's this kind of idea that, you know, you won't have to deal with these sort of performative aspects of work anymore of like trying to look busy or trying to look like you're doing something. Um, That's kind of one of the things that I feel people argue pretty frequently in favor of working from home. And I think it is, as, as I think you mentioned, a lot of times the people who are making that argument are founders or owners or investors or VCs or people who really don't have to prove anything anymore (laughs) about their value to the organization because they're already in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you are a, you know, a low or even a mid-level person, you're still trying to prove your worth. And I was reading an article recently by Anne Helen Peterson Wired, where she writes, as work becomes remote, it's something so many of us think about. How do we demonstrate we're in the office, quote unquote, when we're in our sweatpants on the couch? I do it by dropping links into articles to show that I'm reading, by commenting on other people's links to show that I'm reading Slack, and by participating in conversations to show that I'm engaged. I work very hard to produce evidence that I'm constantly doing work mm-hmm. instead of, well, actually doing work, end quote. And I, I think this aspect of performative work actually carries over to remote work and is maybe even more damaging because you have to try harder to make up for the absence of physical presence. And I'm kind of curious what your take on that is in terms of performative busy work when working from home. If remote work allowed us to be so flexible, why is there a block of time in which we have to be, you know, online, right? Like we're being sold on the benefits of flexibility that I can chunk up my day however I want, but we still feel this pressure to show we're sitting, you know, on on Slack, quote unquote, in the office at any given time, right? So this is, this is why I think some of the proponents of remote work miss the human aspect of it, that even though I'm not being judged by my butt in a chair in an office, I kind of am being judged by how I'm working and if I'm working at a given time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a false, like this idea that it's just output outputs based is kind of false. And it also sort of ignores the psychology behind like how you feel about when you're in that remote situation. Like I think when you're in the remote situation, it makes you feel even more like you have to prove your presence. 
Right. It, it takes the thing it's supposed to solve and makes it worse. And I think one of my points in the piece is like, we're human beings. And I think the people thinking about work in this way, think about us as the input output computers. I think there's something to be said. This is also damning, not so much of remote work, but of the eight hour workday that has to all occur at the same time synchronously. Right. But I think we're acting just by not being in the same place. We're untethered from just time and everything can be asynchronous. And anyone that's worked remote knows that that's not true. I need people to respond quickly to things so we can all adapt and we can all adjust. And also, especially if you're in like a client-facing role or a customer-facing role, you have to be working normal business hours anyway. So I just traded my demand of being a butt in a seat in an office with being on my couch in Lululemon. I mean, the latter is probably more comfortable, but the stresses are very similar. Well, I think one of the things that we are coming to is a word that I'm really obsessed with. And you know this because we used to work together and we used to edit things together, which is the word context. And I think the context is really one of the biggest casualties of the technology revolution that we're living through. You know, for example, we used to have the context of a physical book or a newspaper or a magazine to sort of help us negotiate how we digested new information, right? And then first that context was eroded to a standalone blog post or a news article. Now it's been further eroded into headlines in a news feed and then still further into, you know, a bite-sized hot take on that headline on Twitter or Instagram. And we just get these little bits of information out of context as sort of, you know, an example of how that context is being eroded. And similarly, the office is, or maybe was, like the context for our working lives. And you know, then we got email and that opened the door for things to start to bleed out of that context, right? Work now had access to you when you weren't at work. But remote working kind of seeks to completely remove all context for our work, as you said, right? You're sitting on the couch, you know, wearing your yoga pants and, you know, not surrounded by any of your coworkers. And so, you know, we no longer have that container that says, you know, here we do work, here we tend to our working relationships, here we focus, which also means that, you know, when we have that container, it means elsewhere we get to relax. And so I'm curious, you know, what you think about how that loss of context impacts us or, or even like how it's impacted you. For me, it's been this like kind of slow drag on my uh, psyche. As an example, right? Like, I think the mention of social media and the flattening, right? We talk about information hierarchy, whether it was in a book or magazine, it was curated and now it's all flat, right? You're the, your, your mother sharing puppy photos is in the same flat container online as, you know, the latest political scandal. And that is incredibly exhausting and tiring. And I, th I feel like we've all admit that, especially this year. So why are we going to do the same thing to our working lives, right? We're going to flatten everything to be in the same contextless box. And not only are we doing it online by flattening everything on a screen, we're doing it in our physical space as well. Like I am in the same spot living and working and that kind of flattening and, and difficulty context switching I find tremendously uh dragging and especially as you know in in pandemic times you know people are working out at home like I realized one day uh I wake up I check my phone I stare at that screen and then I get online and I stare at that screen and then I zoom happy hour with my friends and I stare at that screen and then like oh let me go work out uh I stare at a screen on a peloton and then I realized I spent you know 16 out of 17 waking hours staring at screens and it's just like it's not fun and I don't, I don't know i don't know why we're making setting up our lives in this way especially when we can all admit to each other that in other contexts flying everything to a screen is not great but to, to answer your question about places 
I feel like, I don't know about you, but like places have memories, like they have ghosts. Like you, you will walk into a restaurant and remember a thing that happened there, right? Or you walk down a, a city street and you remember something good or bad that happened there. And I feel like when you exist in the same spot, it's almost like your ghosts stack up. And I have a hard time thinking of my home office as my workspace after a while. It's just a place I'm existing and I, and I have a trouble focusing. Um, and, and even if I, and, and I resent how it turns happy places into workplaces, you know, like I have a tiny, tiny backyard here in, in the city and I walk outside to take a break and my backyard has stopped becoming the area where I like barbecue and have fun. And now it's like my break room. <laughs> and it, 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 it kind of like embitters me to this whole process as a result. Mm, I love that phrase, ghost stacking up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you make such a good point, which is, you know, the sort of, we're 3D people, right? In physical bodies who are designed to navigate space. And I think the psychic load of not going to a separate space to do your work is really taxing. I was talking to someone who was taking one of my courses recently and we were talking about, you know, the, she's working from home now and sort of about losing her commute, which was this key boundary for her. And it mm -hmm. was like, well, how do I organize my day now? You know, there are these things I want to do, for instance, before work, but I now have to artificially create a way to segment my day so that it feels like there's a boundary between before I go to work and when I'm starting work, because there actually is no boundary. And doing that type of intellectual boundary creating actually takes a ton of psychic effort and discipline. I agree. And I, and I think maybe you find this, you know, switching where you work, but it's, I think we think about this in terms of places and we should, but I, I think about it in the terms of identity, right? Like I find that when I'm reminded of my full weight of my identity, I have trouble working. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm in my home and I'm reminded the ways in which I am like a husband or, or, or a brother or, oh, I need to like, I'm the guy who fixes things around the house or I'm the guy who's responsible for cleaning those dishes or uh, I have to prepare for the dinner that I'm getting later that day. And oh, by the way, I'm trying to work and answer these work calls. Like that constant reminder of all those things is weighing on me. I don't work as well. And I don't even have children or that many people living in my house. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, a father or a mother of several kids running around as you're trying to work from home. And I think this is why I and other people get energy through new places. You know, I, I think I'm most productive working in a cafe I've never been in before, right? A, a cafe in a new city because the weight of my identity isn't there. Like I'm the only thing I am in that place is what I choose to be. And I think that I am choosing to be productive and I'm choosing to work hard and I'm choosing to be creative and I am much more productive in that zone. But when I'm constantly tethered to the same area or the same context working, it, it's very difficult. So I get that the commute as a way of kind of refreshing your identity as you move from place to place. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It's something that um, Jenny O'Dell, who I've interviewed elsewhere on the podcast, talked about in her book, How to Do Nothing, you know, this kind of flattening of the identity um, that's happening through the sort of technological evolution and how your identity sort of follows you around now or can be fact-checked. And so you don't have that opportunity to be one person in one space and be a different person in another space. But I hadn't thought about that yet in terms of this kind of working from home trend. And I think that's really interesting, like that you don't get to have that um, release of kind of getting to 
re-embody yourself or identify in a slightly different way that maybe you're unable to in your home environment? It's kind of like, have you ever had a social friend like surprise you in the office? And there's always this moment or like maybe you bring your family to like show them where you work and your coworkers get to meet your family. And there's this moment of like identity smashing together that can be really jarring. And I feel like working from home is just that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We have to take a short break now, but stay with me. After the jump, Sean and I talk about how working from home erodes our opportunities for mentorship. Not to mention the deep friendships that emerge from prolonged in-person collaboration. This episode is brought to you by Hey. I have such a strong dislike of email that I wrote a whole book about it called Unsubscribe. So imagine how tickled I was to learn that some folks that I really respect decided to reinvent email. That's right. Jason Fried, who was interview number one on the very first Hurry Slowly podcast, and the team at Basecamp have completely transformed email with their new product, Hey. Jason and I share a passion for creating calm, focused work environments. And Hey, amazingly, brings that ethos to email. Simply put, Hey gives control over your inbox back to you with a host of features you didn't know you needed, but will become instantly addicted to. The first time you get an email from any new sender, you get to decide if you want to hear from that person. Don't want to? You'll never hear from them again. It also lets you prioritize where email from that person will go. The main inbox for important stuff, the feed for newsletters and other casual whenever reads, and paper trail for receipts and other transactions. But my favorite feature is the reply later function, which allows you to stack messages you don't want to deal with now at the bottom of your screen and then bang through them all from a single screen later with the powerful focus and reply function. They also make it easy to change unhelpful email subject lines into something meaningful, so you don't have to navigate threads that have evolved light years away from the original subject. They also block spyware, make attachments easy to find, and let you send large files. Finally, a genuinely thoughtful approach to email. Visit hey.com now to start a free 14-day trial and experience email's new heyday. Once again, that's hey.com for a free 14-day trial. So I want to maybe shift gears a little bit and we'll really actually talk about something we were kind of starting to touch on a little bit, which is, you know, going deeper into your work identity and thinking about the relationships that we develop at work and how those relationships are impacted by working from home. And a big theme in your piece is mentorship and really grieving the loss of mentorship that will inevitably accompany this move to remote work. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, I think one of those vexing biases that occurs when people talk about, honestly, the future of lots of things, especially the future of work, is the people who are talking about the future of something are already on the inside, so to speak, right? They already are in a position they want to be in or, or you know, on their way to whatever goal they're at. And I feel like we, we forget what it's like to be an outsider or we forget what it's like to not quite to be, you know, at arm's length of this thing or industry you're trying to break into. So, you know, as an example, the way in which, I've learned how to do my job, you know, is in part work with pe- people like you, where I can observe the way you 
manage conflict at work or the way you're on the phone interviewing someone or the way at which you're running a meeting or the way in which I see how often you take a break. Just all these little cues that I can't pick up as a result of working remotely. You know, what you do, your process is opaque to me, but I can pick up via osmosis the process of people I respect by being in the same space. And I think we under, we don't quite realize how much of that signaling affects us. And, and the flip is true, right? If when I was young and I would screw up, like people would yell at me. People would say, hey, what are you doing? You're wasting time. I just noticed you're doing that for four hours. Like you don't need to be spending that much time. Um, that kind of like passive critiquing is also extremely important to young people. And I fear for people entering the workforce in this environment and not getting that. And in such an early part of your career, it's devastating to your future growth and, and future earnings. And, and then the other part of this is events and conferences and, and gatherings and happy hours. Think of all the opportunities that have come through people in our lives and through serendipity. It's not happening. You know, when people are lamenting like, oh, I don't need to do business travel anymore. I don't need to fly to this conference. We can all just zoom in. It's like conferences aren't just about the content, right? It's not just about what's on stage. It's about the community that gathers and introducing people. And it just makes me realize that people have forgotten what it's like to just show up to a new space or a new industry and not know what you're doing. And physicality and spaces is the way in which we, we help bridge that gap. Right. And the serendipity that you described just cannot happen online. Like it has to be planned. It has to be scheduled. It has to be closed necessarily to the people who have been, you know, approved to enter the meeting or enter the room, right? You don't get a walk in on a meeting or overhear a phone call. As you said, like so much of that, you know, I think, the, think we, we had already moved out of a mentorship model that was more of an apprenticeship model, you know, where when people had kind of closed offices and, you know, kind of mm -hmm. more time and there was more invested management, it'd be like, okay, like I'm going to take you under my wing and really like apprentice you and show you how to do things. And that form of mentorship, I think largely had already kind of gone out the door as the office hierarchy kind of flattened. But then as we moved to open plan offices, we got this kind of new observational mentorship that you described, right? Because you could see mm -hmm. everything happening. So, you, you know, you can like see what the CEO is doing, you know, or you can see what your coworkers are doing. You can kind of watch over their shoulder. You can overhear. And there's so much learning that happens that way, even though it's passive. But in the all remote world, did you, like, I don't think there's any of that. I mean, do you think that literally any of that can happen at all? I think we try to force it. I, I've seen some things where, you know, oh, join, join this happy hour and we'll shuffle you around and you'll talk to people. But it, it's, it, it, it needs to happen passively and as a slow burn. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, uh, the company I work for now, the CEO, uh, Bob Moore, um, did this cool thing. You know, I, I've known him for a long time, but now when I worked in the same office with him, I realized something about the way he works and, and, and what he cares about, which is, you know, every day in the morning, he always holds a half hour for anyone in the local tech community, you know, can, can book a meeting with him. And that is the way he stays engaged in the local environment, local community and local companies, and maybe mentor someone or gives them feedback on a pitch. Um, and, he, and, he, and he does that every day for a little bit of time. And I only knew that by working side by side with him and saying, oh, I'm getting an idea of this person's values and how he approaches mentorship and how he approaches, you know, giving back to his community. And it was like helpful for me to know that someone this successful still held, literally held space and held time for that. Working remotely, I have no idea. I have no idea 
uh, you know, how people are prioritizing or how people are stacking things up. Um, and I, I think we're acting like that stuff isn't important or that stuff is a waste um, to the point of like, we're acting like we're 2D and we're 3D, as you said before. Yeah, well, and I think we feel like we can trade all of that for flexibility, like we were talking about before. But, you know, so I can live whatever the lifestyle I want. I can go for a run at 3 p.m. if I feel like it. Theoretically, you know, I can mm -hmm. go pick up my kid after school if kids were going to school. You know, theoretically, you could do that, you know, or whatever. You could drive around the country in a van and do your job if you felt like it, like we have this sort of vision of flexibility, but really what that flexibility means is like a complete lack of boundaries in terms of when your workday starts, when your workday ends, the physical space where your workday happens. And I think we don't pay enough attention to that. And as we were sort of saying earlier, how psychologically like taxing and draining that is. It's also... I understand why you frame it in terms of boundaries because that is true, but I see it as detachment. Like what community am I a part of? Like who am I, like what is my relationship to those around me? And this is why I'm such a believer in like localism in that I'm removing a possible community of people I could be a part of that live in the same area I do, that care about the same issues I do, whether that's at work or in, in, in the town I live in. And we're just, you know, splintering us all across the country. So the only thing we really have in common is that we all log into the same digital box every day and type things. And it just feels like we're losing a layer of community in a society where we're already losing lots of layers of community. And it just, you know, saddens me more than the boundaries thing. The, the, the boundaries thing, I feel, uh, especially if you're later in your career, you can be a little bit of a, uh, like a little more staunch and, and putting up boundaries and communicating. But the detachment thing, I just, I just don't know what the remedy is other than being in proximity to, to people. So you mentioned detachment and, you know, what about the loss of relationships with remote work? We, we also just literally don't get to build relationships in the same way. You know, you and I know each other because we work together very closely for years. And I know things about your personal life and about your family life because of that physical proximity. And if we had worked at an all remote company, I don't think there's any way that you and I would be friends in the way that we are. I mean, do you have, I'm curious, deep and lasting friendships from the companies where you've worked remotely? Not those people are my friends. And if they're listening, I love you. Uh, but if, <laughs> but it, you know, the relationship just is not as close as, as being in, in, in person, you know, you and I could go get lunch or get drinks after, or like you could see me come in being sad one day and ask me and understand a little bit about my character, you know, in a way that remote, you know, people can just, you know, obfuscate all that. And, and sometimes that's for the better, right? I, I think people who like to keep work at arm's length and work is not part of my identity. And I just want to go in and out do, do the thing and leave. I have a bit of respect for that position concerning remote work. And I, I get it. That's not, not, that's the way I personally uh, want to live my life. And as a result, I, I don't think the friendships I've made working via remote are as, uh, are as, are as deep, but I mean, there, the, uh, there's an upside I'll defend remote work a little bit. Uh, whenever I travel now, uh, I can like think about who I've worked with, remotely and be like, Oh, I know someone that lives in Baltimore. Like, let me reach out to them. Or I know someone that lives in St. Augustine. I can reach out to them. But those are more kind of like stop-ins, Hey, say hello, than building a long lasting relationship. I think 
for the most part. There's certainly exceptions to both. Um, and I, I would actually challenge anyone who's been working for a remote company for years and years and years, you know, when you hear them talk about the benefits, they will mention things like the flexibility and the autonomy, and that's important. But I don't think they'll say like, oh, I met so many great people working remote. I don't think that ever comes up. But that does come up when people talk about their experience working, you know, co-located with people. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that sense of being a team and being in it together, you know, you just don't feel in the same way. And you just don't see, you know, it's like, I've seen you like in a sweat because you're super stressed about something, you know, or mm -hmm. I've seen you like when you've come in and, you know, been having to deal with heavy family stuff, you know, and like you've seen mm -hmm. me like, whatever, get really frustrated while I was editing something or, you know, you've seen me have to like prep to like do a talk on stage, you know, or go through a breakup or whatever, you know, like we've seen so many sides of each other because we spent all of that time together. And I think that is just a huge loss, like a huge loss to be grieved if we shift more to remote working. Yeah. Like I, I know what good looks like, right? Because this is a great example. Like we used to put on a conference together and I, it was really good. And I thought it was really good before I even worked there. Right. So, you know, once I was on the inside and I saw the seriousness at which you, you took it, I go, okay, that's what's required, right? That's what good looks like. It's, it's like seeing like the workout of an athlete. Like I can watch the games, but then I see the reps they put in in between the games and I go, oh, okay. That's the level I need to be at. And I, I it was tremendously influential to my career growth, like to this day. And I think I fear there's an entire generation being robbed of that and, and I feel for them. Oh my God. What aren't millennials being robbed of? <laughs> now we're on Zoomers now. We millennials are lost calls. Like it's over. Um, so this conversation has been like a little dark so far and I want to get into a little bit more of, of how we can make working remote better and, and maybe even encourage our companies not to shift to entirely all remote work. But before that, I want to talk about something a little bit deeper that a lot of these articles that your piece was reacting to praising working from home that, that a lot of these articles that are really pro working from home don't get into. And that's the larger economic impact of these shifts. Mm -hmm. So for instance, Pinterest paid over $89 million to break a lease on a new office space they had planned in San Francisco in order to shift mm -hmm. permanently to remote work. So I'm being a little bit cynical here, but as a business, you don't spend $89 million to give your workers more flexibility and happiness. And for a company like Pinterest to justify this type of spend to their board, there has to be a serious upside. And obviously there's the future rent that they'll save, but what else do you think is going on here? I mean, this is probably my most alarmist position that I think people will push back with me pretty hard about. But I, you know, I think there are parts of jobs, maybe not in the entire job, where there's a pressure to lead to outsourcing and commoditization. And what I mean by that is when people talk about remote work, they talk about it as if, oh, my company is moving to, uh, to be remote. That means I don't need to be in this cramped apartment in New York City. I can be, you know, on a, on a farm in right off of Montauk and, you know, work on my computer and tend to my crops at night. I don't know. Um, there's like always like some rural, you know, <laughs> nature component to this. Um, but those jobs don't just go to you, but in a better place, right? The moment you decouple them from the location, they could technically go to anyone and anywhere. And we've already seen evidence that these, uh, especially in, in tech, there's a downward pressure on wages as a result. I think it, it's like uh, Facebook and I believe it's Stripe uh, said, hey, if you move out of these high um, cost of living places, you know, and you go live in Kansas, 
we're going to dock your salary. Like we're going to pay you according to your local uh, environment, right? So again, if we're just being measured on our production and our output, why would they do that, right? And it's because like they, they, the, that's the, the downward pressure that they're seeking to engage on their workforce. I mean, we've, we've seen a, in, in the service economy, we've seen a cre- the creation of like a hidden kind of on-demand class, you know, people driving Ubers or delivering Grubhub or picking up groceries from Fresh Direct. And in some ways, this is good, right? It gives people flexible work. But it also like robs a, us of like humanity by we could just get things by hitting a button on the app and we dispatch someone to go get it. And that entire chain is disconnected. And I fear that technology puts a pressure on every job to be like that. And that's why I'm always kind of saddened that people are cheering this progress because I feel like they're cheering their own demise in a way. Yeah, well, and indirectly, you just kind of touched on something else that I wanted to talk about in terms of what's going on here. And that's that there's this sort of massive hidden part of the office economy that we're going to be dismantling. And we already are dismantling Mm -hmm. in this shift to remote work and about you know, I looked up the numbers and about 25% of the workforce here in the U.S. is dedicated to, you know, personal service industry jobs. So feeding, clothing, transporting, entertaining, you know, the white collar office workers who largely come into a certain part of the city to do their work every day. And these are people who are working in low wage, you know, service sector jobs, whose jobs have really been like decimated since the pandemic started and, you know, everyone started working from home or not everyone, but the, you know, this, this knowledge sector, these knowledge workers started working from home. And, you know, these are people who maintain offices, right? The cleaners, security people, maintenance folks, they're people who help, you know, those office workers look nice for work and stay fed, right? Restaurant workers, dry cleaners, shoe shiners, And then, you know, there's the whole sort of business travel sector that you mentioned or people who ferry them to work, right? Taxi drivers, Uber drivers, airline workers, hotel workers. And these low-wage jobs have been lost in massive quantities. And if we make the shift to remote work for good, they're not coming back. So I think that localism argument that you mentioned really comes into play here, but a lot of people aren't really seeing that yet. Yeah, I think... I think there's people that think, well, if, if you, especially if you live in an urban area, but even suburban areas, right? Whatever bar is your favorite bar or restaurant is your favorite restaurant or street or park is your favorite, probably mostly exists because there's centers of commerce and office workers that are in some adjacent area to that, which can keep those places, you know, uh, in business. And the idea of, you know, concentration and community and like that energy you feel downtown, um, what happens when we're all just in our remote work pods in our in our apartments or in in the suburbs? It, that stuff that 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 community is gonna be like is gonna be frayed apart. Now, I also don't want to be like too alarmist here, right? Like, there's someone when the car was invented that was like, well, what about all the horse drivers, right? Like, obviously the car, you know, is, we would all take cars over horses any day, but I don't know what the thing is that replaces that, right? Like, tell me, tell me the efficiency we're gaining, other than I get to work more as a result of this. Like, I'd rather be in a world where I like see my, like, go to the same coffee shop and get to know the people in my community that are operating small businesses on my way to and from work and as a part of working somewhere than never leaving my house and working from home. Like, that flexibility isn't worth it to me. The, my, the fabric of local small business and local community gathering spaces is not worth the sacrifice of some flexibility on my part. It's, it, that's, just not, that's not a trade I want. And I don't know if people realize that 
if the trend is taken to its extreme conclusion, that's what will happen. Yeah. And on top of that, right, this kind of widening gap of haves and have nots, right? So the sort of the haves, you know, people who are um, knowledge workers, you know, you and I who have largely been able to continue their work and keep their jobs uninterrupted. And then the have nots, you know, people who are working in these service sector jobs, which are, you know, as everyone moves to working from home are just falling away, you know, maybe not mm-hmm. to ever, to ever return per se. And so you, you know, this is just kind of, we already, you know, have, have such a huge gap between the haves and have nots. And it's just this, this pandemic and this work from home trend seems to even be accelerating that more, you know, and, and as you say, you can be alarmist and talk about like this leading to sort of the hollowing out of cities, you know, I know you live in Philadelphia, a city that you love and you're really passionate about. I mean, how do you see this unfolding there? Or, and is there anything you're kind of thinking about, like in terms of how we can kind of combat this shift or, or support, you know, those service sector folks who are being hit really hard? Surprisingly, actually, some of the bad things that happened here gave me greater hope for the downtown core and downtown cities. So, you know, the way Philadelphia is organized is there's center city, which is where the dense bed of office buildings are and like a ring of residential areas. So a lot of people commute from the ring into center city. And if you go there now, it's kind of bizarre, like it's empty and normally it's very packed. Um, but the, the neighborhoods are actually more packed as well. Like the satellite locations of the city are a little more crowded. And, you know, June was a bleak time here. And as it was a bleak time in lots of places, it was hard to entangle, you know, there were riots and protests and a pandemic, uh, trash wasn't getting picked up. Like it, it was, it was, it was a little rough, it was a little rough in, in Philly, but, uh, something great started to happen, which is I saw tangible evidence of communities getting tighter. So as an example, um, someone smashed a bunch of storefronts on a, on a, on a street here and, um, a, a bunch of people, uh, walked to the street the next morning with, trash bags and brooms and there was not an organized effort. They just picked it all up and threw it away and cleaned it up and helped like restore that street. And I was like, beautiful to see or, uh, neighbors in my blocks are check. Oh, my block which is an incredibly diverse group of people are checking in to each other. We we're getting to know each other. We're exchanging food. Uh, we started trash pickups where we're all going from block to block and just making sure every block's clean. Um, that that's, that's the stuff that's only happened because of the bad things that are happening here. So it's, it's in a way encouraging and uh, no surprise. It reaffirms my belief in, in, in localism and in communities and that our businesses should be things that contribute back to their local environments and the call to detach them from their local environments to me is going to, you know, let le- make this harder, make the best things about the places we live harder to maintain. And that's, that's what work means to me, right? It's like not only working for a company, but it's also contributing to a local area, a local economy and a local community. And I understand it doesn't mean that for everybody, but I kind of wish it did because I don't think we would cheer this trend as much. When how do you, you know, is there anything that you think or you have seen people doing to kind of push back against this trend? Because the impression that I have, and this is just an impression. It's not like based on deep research is that, you know, companies that are deciding to move more to working from home or considering it, I don't know how much they're really consulting the workers themselves versus how much they're consulting their bottom line and saying, Mm -hmm. wow, well, you know, then I won't have to pay for office space and I won't have to pay for, you know, this cleaning crew and this maintenance and this catering. 
you know, I'm kind of wondering what people can do to potentially encourage their companies not to make that shift, but it's unclear to me, you know, how much agency people really have. Yeah, I think uh, if I'm right about the importance of collaboration and community and being co-located, co-located companies will outmaneuver and be more profitable than remote companies or be better at what they do, right? Like there's a, there's almost like a natural check on this, which is if the, if people who are favoring fully remote, remote all the time are right, then people will choose to work there and those companies will uh, make better things. I personally don't think that's what's going to happen. And I've worked within organizations where they had trouble adjusting and adapting to things that were happening as a result of being fully remote. So I would bet my life on any co-located company beating a remote work uh, upstart. But I mean, as an individual, I think the thing you can do is make it clear the kind of working style you like. And like, listen, like I'm not anti-remote wholesale. Like I think flexible is the best way to go. Like let me go in an office two to three days a week and let me focus the other one or two days. Like, that's the way to go. And I think people are receptive to that. And you're seeing companies that maybe, I think that's where we're going to land. I think some of the co-located companies are going to be more, more relaxed and a little more flexible about when people can come and go and trusting of their employees a little more. And I think the remote companies, the fully remote companies are going to get their butt kicked over the long term. And I think we're going to end in a happy medium. I think you're right about the where this is all going to land and how it's all going to pan out, at least hopefully. What are some of the other silver linings that you see coming out of this kind of partial shift to working from home? Well, I, I mentioned localism and I talked to Azio about it, but I do think, I hope there's a change of, I think we think of tech companies as sort of like of the internet and agnostic of the space in which they live. And that's not true. They have impact on their local economies. And I think people are going to realize those, those impacts as this remote work happens. I mean, um, I can look at my window and I see two giant skyscrapers uh, that Comcast built <laughs> and they have, they certainly have an impact positive and negative in different ways on, on Philadelphia. And, and there's lots of companies that have similar impacts. Um, I think we're going to think of tech businesses as local businesses, even though they live on the internet. I think that's positive. I also think that the introduction of flexible work is going to be a boon for especially like new parents as well. I think we have a lot of cost and acrimony associated with uh, getting, making sure that a parent or, or someone who's a caretaker that has to sit in this office for five days a week when maybe they could get away with three, right? Like a little bit of give on some of that, especially in white collar work, that, that pressure that being there is a sign that you're doing your job well. Um, I think the fact that companies haven't utterly exploded as a result of working remote should give people, you know, at least a little bit of uh, encouragement that they can trust their employees. And then I think we're going to see a kind of remote switch from remote required to remote friendly. Um, The one benefit that I can see from the pandemic and people working remotely and not being able to go to restaurants and not be able to go to church or not be able to go to concerts is, you know, we like being around other people. We like we like the vibe of a community. We like the the buzz when when we're with people, and we like randomly bumping into people. And I think that's one of the main uh, best parts of being alive. So like, let's not rob our entire working existence from that. I, I think the fact that I was part of 19 Zoom happy hours when the pandemic started, and no one has asked me to do a Zoom happy hour in quite some time, uh, is a, is a pretty good sign. That I think we're all just going to learn to appreciate each other and appreciate our coworkers and being in the same space. Uh, a tiny bit more. For me, 
The most surprising takeaway from this conversation was Sean's perspective on identity and how ghosts stack up when we do all of our tasks and inhabit all of our personas in the same place. How the space that used to be reserved for relaxation and fun now seems polluted, or at the very least, diluted. And it brings me back to a theme that I land on again and again as I try to understand the impact of technology on the human condition. That it pulls us out of our bodies, out of 3D space, and out of awareness and dialogue with our core, vital, essential physicality. We need to move through space. We need to change spaces. We need to have space for communing, space for working, space that is sacred. Without that, life is just like one long, infinite scroll through the same experiences with different headlines. We need real-world 3D interactions. They are the thing that makes us human, that gives our lives meaning. And I can't wait to get back to them as soon as we safely can. As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for giving extra polish to the audio and composing our soothing theme song. If this episode made you think differently, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's a link right down there in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and remember to hurry slowly. Thank you.